It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. This is Robert Polly, delighted to be bringing you another edition of the show. And uh, this one we are calling All the Children Are Above Average. Developmental psychologist Allison Gopnik has been studying the minds of infants and toddlers for more than 20 years. And she says they've got a lot more going on in there, that is, in their heads, than scientists previously suspected. You doting moms and dads may have known all along that your babies are mental marvels, But it's taken a while for researchers to catch up to that view. The conventional wisdom was that young children have a tremendous learning capacity, of course, but they start out pretty clueless about things like logic, causality, empathy, and other faculties that come with adulthood, at least supposedly. One great blooming, buzzing confusion is how the psychologist William James described a baby's experience of the world. But Alison Gopnik says that over the last three decades, close observation and some very clever experiments have shown that kids are much more sophisticated in all kinds of ways than formerly believed. She lays out the evidence in her new book. It's called The Philosophical Baby. Gopnik could have just as easily called it the scientific baby or the ethical baby or the hyper-aware baby because she says babies are all those things. And we're going to hear from Alison Gopnik in just a moment, so do stick around. Now a conversation with Alison Gopnik. She's a professor of psychology and an affiliate professor of philosophy at UC Berkeley, where I spoke to her just last week. You have a laboratory here at UC mm-hmm. Berkeley, yeah, where you work with children and babies. Mm-hmm. Can you describe it for us, where you do these experiments on, on babies? So it's very unimpressive compared to the big brain scanners and things like that that we have at UC Berkeley. It's a little room with a little table and little chairs and a bunch of blocks and toys. And we put either baby and mom or uh, just the baby on one side and the experimenter on the other side. And that's our fancy lab. Who are your experimental subjects? Where do you get them? Uh, Well, very often we actually uh, study the children who are in the early childhood education programs at UC. So I've worked very hard to have really great early childhood education in preschools at UC. Um, And part of that is that we interact a lot. There's a lot of interaction between the researchers and uh, and the preschools. So you bring kids in, you do a series of experiments, and I want to discuss a few of these experiments. And The result is that you have uh, managed to become convinced, as you say in your book, that young children are actually smarter, more imaginative, more caring, and even more conscious than adults are. I should have prefaced that by saying, in some ways. That's Mm -hmm. a quote from your book. Let's take those those, uh, arguments one at a time. Smarter than adults. Well, Well, what can a kid do that adults don't normally do or can't do? Well, one of the things is that as grown-ups, we tend to rely a lot on the information that we've already accumulated. We tend to rely a lot on what we already know. Uh, so we're very good at taking what we've already know, what we already know, what we've already learned, and putting it to use for practical purposes. Let's say uh, accomplishing a goal. Children are terrible at accomplishing goals. They're terrible at putting things to use, but they're very good at exploring possibilities, at learning new things, at paying attention to something that's unexpected in the world around them. Uh, and that it's that uh, ability that seems to be very, even more intensely true for babies and children than it is for adults. You call them little scientists. 
Well, actually, what I say is that it's not so much that they're little scientists, it's that scientists are big children. So <laughs> I think that scientists actually use a lot of the capacities that, uh, that really evolved for use by babies and young children. Now, scientists apply them deliberately. I mean, they sort of know what scientific method is. They know how to create an experiment and do some statistical analysis that proves the results are significant. But you're saying babies and, and young children apply some of the same techniques, yeah? Mm-hmm. In a not-so-deliberate way. Well, what we've discovered is that when you actually look at what babies and young children are doing, um, and when you try to analyze what scientists are doing, uh, scientists themselves don't always realize this, but there's actually some very systematic ways that scientists are taking evidence and using it to, say, make up a theory about how the world works. And there are things like uh, looking at statistical patterns and analyzing them, doing various kinds of causal inference, uh, doing experiments to uh, doing something to the world and seeing what happens, doing thought experiments, imagining possibilities. That's all part of the arsenal of science. And what we started discovering is that even babies and young children are doing many of the same things. And in fact, we've collaborated with computer scientists who are trying to design machine learning programs, programs that will let computers learn the way that scientists mm. learn. Um, and we're finding that many of the ideas they have about how to learn are very similar to what children are doing, and vice versa. By looking at what children are doing, we can get ideas that will help us to design computers that will learn. For instance, what kinds of skills uh, are kids applying that are similar to those that, that scientists well, f- for example, children seem to be analyzing statistics. So they're looking at statistical patterns and they're working out what causes what in the world based on the statistical patterns that they see. Can you tell um, me about any experiments that you've run that show this? So one of the ways that we've actually tried to figure out of what, it is that, uh, what it is that children are thinking is we can't, we can't figure out if children are doing things like doing statistical analyses by asking them. So what we do is we actually show them a box, a little machine that we call the Blicket Detector, and this machine lights up and plays music when you put some things on it but not other things. Um, and then what we can do is actually put things on the machine. So an experiment would go like this. I'd say, oh, look, here's my machine, and we can put things on it, and some of these blocks will make it light up, the Blickets will make it light up, but if it's not a Blicket, it won't make it light up. So I want you to figure out which ones are Blickets. And then we can show children different kinds of patterns of probability between the machine and the, and the objects. So, for instance, I could say, well, let's put the yellow block on the machine. Oh, look, it didn't light up. And now let's put the blue block on the machine. Now, look, it did light up. And now let's put both blocks, the blue block and the yellow block, on the machine. Oh, look, it lit up. Now, can you make it stop? Oh, can I play the role of the kid? Sure. Yeah, just hit it with a hammer. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so the yellow block didn't make it go. Right. The blue block did. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking that by removing the blue block, we could stop that thing. That's right. Well, you're almost <laughs> as smart as a four-year-old uh, because that's what four-year-olds and even three-year-olds and two-year-olds um, are able to do. Yeah. Um, they can figure that out. Now, remember, the yellow block did sort of make it go. When you put the yellow block and the blue block on together, the machine lit up. Uh, so you have to discount that because you say, oh, well, but that was just superficial. Mm -hmm. And the way that scientists do that is by using an idea called conditional probabilities or conditional dependencies. And children unconsciously seem to be doing something very much like that as they try and figure out how the block works. Better than adults. 
Well, better than adults in the sense that an adult trying to figure out something like the Blicket Detector is likely to start out by relying on what he already knows about how machines mm -hmm. work, not paying attention to the evidence about how the machine works. Mm -hmm. So they're better observers, better, more open-minded. Uh, in fact, the children's advantage seems to be that they have a lot more possibilities that they're willing to consider. In fact, we did some of these experiments with UC undergraduates, and we discovered that to get them to do them, we had to say... We're doing this with four-year-olds, so don't try and overthink this. Just don't try and figure out what's, what's going on. Just you go with your first guess. Um, and we had to do that uh, to keep them from just psyching themselves out in these experiments. Now, beyond smarts of, of that kind, you also say kids are more morally developed than we sometimes uh, uh, imagine. Um, you know, one stereotype is that kids are totally selfish. Little kids, I mean. Right. Me, me, me. Just ids, just desires, impulses. What have you found that's contrary to that? Well, what we've discovered is that even uh, very young babies, in fact, even newborns, already seem to link the way that they feel and the way that other people feel. And you can see this in things like the way that babies imitate the facial expressions that they see other people produce. By the time they're 14 months old, babies are already not just empathic, but actually altruistic. So there are some very nice recent studies that show, for instance, that if you show a baby, a grown-up who just dropped a pen, and the grown-up's reaching for the pen, the baby will actually climb over cushions, go all the way across the lab to get the pen and give it back to the grown-up. If the grown-up deliberately throws the pen to the ground, so it looks as if the grown-up really wants the pen to be on the ground, the baby won't do that. Um, so the baby really seems to be reading what the grown-up wants, and then very sweetly and nicely going and trying to help him get what he mm. wants. There's another uh, little experiment. I, think it was, I don't think it was from your lab, but from another lab that involved uh, goldfish crackers and broccoli. Oh, no, that's my lab. That's yeah. your lab. Well, that's a good uh, one. Let's hear about so that. We so we thought maybe we'd been underestimating uh, what people thought about uh, children's understanding of uh, other people's what other people wanted. So again, the conventional wisdom was that children were very uh, were egocentric and couldn't appreciate differences between what they wanted and someone else wanted. Mm -hmm. So my student Betty Repicoli and I designed an experiment where we showed children two bowls of food: one bowl of raw broccoli and one bowl of Pepperidge Farm goldfish crackers. Um, and the children, of course, being sensible, all liked the crackers and didn't like the broccoli. And then we showed them the experimenter, and the experimenter would take a taste of the food from each bowl and would either smile and go, mmm, yum, yum, or else go, ooh, yuck. And half the time, the experimenter would act as if she really loved the broccoli. She'd go, mmm, broccoli, but didn't like the crackers. She'd go, oh, yuck, crackers. And then she would put her hand out and say to the baby, can you give me some? And what we discovered was that 18-month-olds would give her the crackers if she liked the crackers, and they'd give her the broccoli if she liked the broccoli. So they seemed to appreciate that she might actually prefer something different from them. Hmm. The 15-month-olds didn't. The 15-month-olds looked at her for a long time and sort of acted as if she was a bit weird, but they just gave her the crackers because everybody, of course, would like crackers. Um, and, and this is not just a kid just trying to please an adult, you know, for selfish reasons. This is truly altruistic in your mind? Well, it certainly is striking that what the children are doing is trying to make the adult happy. Mm. Um, and these other uh, experiments that more directly test altruism suggest that, in fact, that's what children are trying to do from a very early age. So the, the negative idea of a kid, you know, more interested in their own selves than any, anything else. Any truth to that? I mean, uh, or are you saying that they really are pretty morally well-developed? Um, 
Well, if you mean by morally well-developed, caring about other people, I think, uh, I think we have every reason to believe that certainly by the time they're 18 months old, uh, babies are as sensitive to other people's feelings, maybe even more sensitive to other people's feelings than adults. Uh, it takes a lot of work to really dislike your fellow human being. Do you, do you agree with that Rogers and Hammerstein uh, uh, song from South Pacific? You got to be taught the, well, all the, about prejudice the, and bigotry that has yeah. to be ingrained in you, that it doesn't come naturally? Well, the, here's the sad part. The good part is that our sense of empathy and altruism and caring seems to come naturally. But actually, some of the evil things seem to come naturally, too. Uh, so at the same time that children are naturally, naturally appreciate some very fundamental moral principles, they also start dividing people into in-groups and out-groups when they're three or four. So they already start to appreciate, oh, here's people who are like me, and here's people who aren't like me, and they start treating the not-me's different from the me's. So some of the uh, basic principles that lead to evil are there as early as the ones that lead to good. I hate to ask this because I'm afraid of the answer, but are things like racial you know, prejudice and things like that, uh, natural things that they gravitate toward, those kinds of discriminations? Or well, is, is the me and not me or the us and not us, is it along other lines? Well, in fact, it seems as if children can be sensitive to lots of differences, even very arbitrary differences uh, between people. And there's some interesting recent studies which suggest, rather interestingly, that things like the language you speak may actually be more relevant for young babies than your race. So babies already seem to be sensitive to the difference between here's someone who literally mm. speaks my language versus mm. here's someone who's speaking a uh -huh. foreign language. But in some experiments, babies will, will even dis distinguish between here's someone wearing the same color T-shirt, uh, three-year-olds, between, you know, here's someone wearing the same color T-shirt or here's someone wearing a different color. So, so they have this tendency to divide people into in-groups and out-groups, but is, are these, these distinctions that we adults are so familiar with and which have caused so many problems, religion, race you know, gender, other kinds of bigotry and discrimination. Are those things that we impose on, on this basic tendency to distinguish people? I, I think that's right. So yeah. there's the, the, the roots of my group versus your group seem to be there, but how that gets played out is very different in different cultures and times. And we can overcome it by giving uh, children uh, a chance to, and I think giving adults a chance to have the kind of close, empathetic, one-to-one -one experiences that... Uh, that seem to root our, the child's own empathy and altruism. Mm. And I want to break in and remind listeners that this is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and I'm talking to Alison Gopnik, developmental psychologist and author of The Philosophical Baby, What Children's Minds Tell Us About Truth, Love, and the Meaning of Life. And we'll get back to that conversation in just a moment. You've got to be taught to hate and fear you've got to be taught from year to year it's got to be drummed in your dear little ear you've got to be carefully taught you've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shade you've got to be carefully taught you've got to be taught before it's too late before you are six or seven or eight to hate all the people your relatives hate You've got to be carefully taught You've 
to be carefully taught. Easy Opinza there from the original Broadway recording of South Pacific, the song by Rogers and Hammerstein, not Steen, as I said earlier. And now back to the matter at hand. Kids, what do they know and when do they know it? Psychologist Alison Gopnik says that in the last 30 years, there's been a revolution in science's understanding of young children's mental capacities, and they're a lot more advanced than formerly thought. Now, your book makes a, a, a strong argument that, that kids are smarter, and young kids we're talking about, mm-hmm. are, are smarter, more astute, more rational, logical, also more morally developed, more conscious, and I could go on. Uh, than we've been giving them credit for. And by we, I guess I mean Western philosophy, Western thought, Mm -hmm. you know, Western science. I don't know if this is true of of parents. Mm -hmm. Um, What's your sense of why that would be? And um, and then I want to talk about parents and how they have viewed their kids all these years. Well, to be fair, if you just superficially look at babies and young children... Uh, you're not going to see very much. Um, babies don't talk. Uh, when young children do talk, they are all over the map. Uh, you can see why if you just sort of looked at children in a superficial way, you wouldn't realize everything that was happening. I think everybody who's looked at children in a more careful way, uh, which means people who've taken care of children over all the years, um, has seen that there's a sense that there's more going on. And of course, it's, you know, relevant that the people who were taking care of children for all those years were not the people who were doing philosophy and psychology. Mm -hmm. Most philosophers not only were men, but they were men who didn't have children. Lots of them were monks. Um, And a lot of the others were de facto monks. Um, So when you look carefully at children, you see some of these things, but it's very elusive. It's very hard to put your finger on. What is it about that look in their eyes that makes you think, oh yeah, he understands what I'm doing? Uh, And again, even the great uh, developmental psychologist Piaget, uh, who was a fantastic observer, I should say it was actually him and his wife, Valentin. Valentin Uh actually was the one who did the observations. Uh Um, Even great observers like that uh, could only go so far with just looking at what children were doing. And it was really the invention of videotape in the 70s that gave developmental psychology a tool by which we could look at children's behavior at something like where they looked or what they reached for. And then we could do, we could repeat it again and again and make sure that it wasn't, we weren't just imagining it. There really was something that was there. So I think it was a confluence of a kind of sociological change of thinking that babies and children were worth paying attention to. But then also this technological change of being able to turn your observations of children into science, that's what has really led to this great revolution in our Mm. understanding. And as always in science, what's happened is that as we started doing experiments, we figured out how to do better and better and better experiments. So we've gotten better and better at talking to children in their language instead of our language. Mm -hmm. And and, and to add to those uh, developments that you just listed, the increasing place of, of women scientists in the fold uh, probably has affected things too, yeah? Yeah, I think there's no doubt about that. It's uh, it's funny, one of my uh, senior colleagues in development at Berkeley, who's a man, actually had to do a degree in home economics in order to study developmental psychology because the developmental psychology at Cornell was all done in the home economics department. Uh, which, it wasn't in the psychology department? It wasn't in the psychology and department. And Cornell had a home economics department? <laughs> yeah, well, Cornell is a, uh, was a, um, an, <laughs> an agri- uh, land college. Uh-huh. Um, Ivy League and land grant at the so, same time. Okay. Uh, 
And it's true that that had been seen as being women's work, but women hadn't been seen as really being mm. fully-fledged members of the academic community. And as more and more women who had children became scientists, and also as more and more male scientists began to take a greater role in taking care of their children, I'm sure that that had something to do with this big change. A lot of the scientists whose work you cite in your book are women. Mm -hmm. When you started out, did you have to, to fight the male-dominated academy at all? When you went off to Oxford, for instance? Well, it's certainly true that in philosophy, philosophy is still very, very male-dominated. Mm -hmm. And although philosophers try, are trying very hard to change that, it's a long tradition. It probably comes from the fact that philosophy was dominated by religion in the church for so long. Mm. Uh, uh, but then and now, uh, it's often been really hard to persuade philosophers that babies are even worth talking about. I remember talking to one Oxford philosopher when I was in graduate school and presenting these ideas about maybe children could tell us about this. And, and he said to me, well, one has seen children about, hasn't one? But one would never actually talk to one. <laughs> There's a famous anecdote. I don't know if it's true, but at one point, Vladimir Nabokov was considered for a position in the English department, I believe at Oxford, or was it Cambridge? Um, and that was nixed. And uh, one member of the faculty said, you wouldn't want, want to hire an elephant for a zoology position, would you? <laughs> <laughs> so this belittling of actual experience. But, but um, more and more, uh, it sounds like the, uh, the discourse is, is being um, um, driven by people who actually have kids uh, and who have been mothers. Well, I think that's I think that's certainly part of it. Although it should be said that there have been uh, great developmental psychologists who haven't actually had children mm -hmm. themselves. I don't think it's an issue about having ch children y yourself so much as just thinking that children are worthwhile, paying attention to children, looking at children. Uh, I like to draw an analogy sometime to the wonderful way that when you hear about Darwin. Darwin learned as much as he did by listening to people who other people hadn't listened to, like the pigeon breeders and the cottage gardeners and the, uh, the greyhound fanciers. Um, and I think some of that's happened with development as well. By listening to people who hadn't really been listened to as much, like mothers, uh, we started realizing something that we could turn into real science. So let's take this um, scientifically put together picture of kids' minds that holds them to be smarter and more conscientious, more sophisticated, more perceptive, more systematic than a lot of people give them credit for. Mm -hmm. Have parents in any way been onto this all along? I mean, are, are there folk, maybe instinctual or acculturated practices of parenting that sort of already get this? Or do you think parents have been going wrong as well as scientists? Well, I think there's a difference between what parents do intuitively and what parents do self-consciously. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we know is that part of the reason why children can learn as much as they can is because parents are actually very sensitive to children's explorations and questions and try, attempts to try and find out about the world. So in some sense, parents intuitively are in tune with the fact that their children are learning as much as they do. But I think self-consciously, parents uh, have tended to go with what uh, the scientists were telling them. Um, and it, to this day, parents often take the wrong message from this research. So parents often conclude, oh, the children are so smart, we should put them in school. Mm. Uh, and not just parents, governments, the no child, mm. no child Left Behind very explicitly says, well, we know that children can learn so much, so we should have them doing reading drills when they're in preschool. Uh, and the message in some ways is exactly the opposite. It's that the way that these babies and young children are learning is through their everyday interaction with other people, through exploration and play and affection and all the things that babies and parents do naturally. Mm -hmm. um, 
so one way we've gone wrong, you think, is by putting too much pressure on them for structured learning, you know, discipline, making little college students out of them at very early ages? Well, exactly one of the things that we've we've learned is that there's a real difference between the kind of uh, learning and intelligence that involves focus and planning and being directed toward a particular goal and the kind of learning that we do when we're just exploring. Computer scientists talk about the difference between systems that explore and systems that exploit. Mm. And when we think about learning in, say, a context like school, we tend to think about learning as a kind of uh, process, uh, a kind of, as a very goal-directed process. There's an exam, there's a curriculum, there's a bunch of things you need to learn, and you go after that the way you go after any adult goal. Um, now, I think we could make an argument that even in schools and colleges and as adults, we need to do more of the other kind of learning, but it's certainly important and valuable to learn in that goal-directed way as an adult. But that's not what the young children are doing at all. In fact, young children are terrible at doing anything that's planned or focused or goal-directed. The trade-off is that by not doing those things, they seem to have this kind of openness, creativity, sense of possibility, uh, which is very different from what you see in adults. And that's something that gets cultivated just in the course of play, exploration, uh, interaction, and talking, things like that, rather than with the sort of, here's the curriculum and here's how you should establish it that you see with older children or with adults. So, so are you advocating just letting them run free more, or are you advocating a kind of planned play that think, maximizes learning? I think just letting them run free yeah. is pretty good. Uh, <laughs> so all work and no play is, uh, uh, does make uh, them dull, huh? Uh, well, in fact, you know, the, this is a, a one of those true cliches, play is the work of children. There's mm. a reason why children are playing. Mm. Um, children, play is exactly the activity that young children engage in that enables them to learn as much as they do. Uh, so what I say sometimes is, well, if you want to think about the optimally rich environment, it probably involves more mud, livestock, and relatives than most of us mm. could really tolerate. But a bean plant and a goldfish and a bunch of mixing bowls and and most of all, and hardest of all, a uh, relaxed, well-supported, well-paid uh, caregiver, um, that's the real formula for, for letting the children learn as much as they can. Dream on. Yeah, right. <laughs> the school system as we know it, uh, the system that starts with kindergarten or maybe even earlier, like preschool, and then goes on through, through high school and then maybe into higher education, really didn't exist more than, what, 100 years ago? Right. So it's, we're talking about a pretty profound change in in human uh, upbringing. Well, I think it's a really interesting problem. I, I, it, one shouldn't romanticize the past, but I think it's pretty plausible that what happened in the past was that children had this period, the first five years, when they played and explored just the way they do now. Um, and then children shifted into this mode of apprenticeship, of actually learning the very specific focused skills that they were going to need to learn to be adults. Uh, and both those kind of educational techniques, this early playful exploration and then this much more focused apprenticeship, worked really well to do the human job of transforming children into adults. I think we're in a funny kind of quandary now because on the one hand, we want adults to have the ability to have very broad general learning and exploration that we typically see in babies. Um, but we also want the kind of focused and planned learning that we see in apprenticeship. And sometimes I think we end up with the worst of both worlds because we don't give children a chance to actually, we don't give older children a chance to actually learn how to do something well and effectively and efficiently. Um, and we also don't give them a chance to explore. We give them a chance to do something called go to school, which often is neither one of those. 
Um, the other thing that school did, aside from imposing this kind of structure and, and maybe pushing play to the side, um, as well as practical applied skills that you're talking about, is it took kids who might have formerly hung around with a broad range of ages from adults to other children, right, mm-hmm. in a very mixed and changing milieu day to day, and put them in this very segregated environment where they're stuck only with people of their exact same age right? for large stretches of the day. What, what is your sense of that effect? Well, one interesting effect of this is that our experience of caregiving has really changed. So one of the things that we've discovered is, as I say, how subtly and intuitively uh, the people who are taking care of children, parents, um, and others are sensitive to what children are learning and give children just the information they need to learn as much as they do. Uh, And that, in turn, is a skill that we all learn the way we learn everything uh, else. It's an experience that we learn. Uh, In the past, by the time you actually had a child of your own, you had taken care of a lot of children. um, And you'd seen a lot of caregiving taking place. Uh, We now have this very strange situation where people have children who've never picked up a baby before, who've never taken care of a younger sib, who've never had a younger cousin that they took care of, who've never watched an older cousin take care of a younger child. Uh, And it's no wonder they get so crazy and anxious about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then what about sticking the kids in this environment where all they are, they're surrounded by other kids of exactly the same age. Yeah. I mean, this is a bit of a hobby horse of mine, but I think we also have lots of evidence that children are extremely good at learning from older children. There are some things that they learn from older children that they don't learn from Mm. their parents. Mm. Uh, One of the really interesting recent findings is that this theory of mind that we were talking about before, this ability to understand what's going on in someone else's mind, that's actually something that younger siblings seem to do better than older siblings. Um, And the more older siblings you have, the more people you have around you, uh, the better you are at understanding people. So there's something about, you can kind of, I I always think of this as being like Napoleon said that the valet always knows more about his master than the master Mm. does about the valet. And I think if you're a, you know, a little brother, you learn to appreciate everything going on in your older brother's head pretty quickly, but also you learn from, uh, from older children. Uh, So our evidence is that a wa- interacting with a wide variety of people, a wide variety of ages, a wide variety of temperaments, which is what we would have done for most of human history, um, seems to be a better way of learning than just having, you know, mom, teacher, other students. Yeah, it occurs to me also that a bunch of kids of the same age going through the same difficulties are going to reinforce some of the <laughs> worst qualities in each other, right? I mean, the peer pressure phenomenon, things like that. This is more an issue that comes up with school-age children yeah. rather than with uh, with preschoolers. But yeah. certainly, children learn a lot by interacting both with other kids who are older and other kids who are younger. And we've tended to really discount that in the way that we raise children now. Yeah, we are drifting a little bit away from the age group you specialize in, right. though, yes, which are infants through five. five. Yeah. And, and and what what general word do you apply for that range of ages? <laughs> so this is a this is always a question. I when I went to call the book the philosophical baby, I went back and forth about well, is it really babies? Um, and my rule of thumb is for me, it's a baby if they've got fat cheeks and they pronounce words funny. Even though I know that many three year olds would vigorously disagree with this as an assessment, but I look at one of those sweet chubby little faces and I say, oh, there's my baby. Mm. Well. <laughs> Uh, now, I have been known to refer to my 21-year-old, six-foot-three, uh, tattooed, pierced son in the same way, so I may not be a reliable guy. always be your baby. <laughs> um, you raised three sons. 
Right. I imagine they were your, your, if not experimental, they were certainly your observational subjects quite a bit, yeah? Yeah. Were they uh, guinea pigs of a sort? Well, my youngest son was in some of those blicket detector experiments when we were just first starting out. And I re- still remember the way the blicket detector actually works is that there's a graduate student who's <laughs> flicking a switch in the back room. And he was so bright and clever about trying to figure this out. And then he was he was very indignant when it turned out that actually it was the guy in the other room pushing the switch that was uh, At what age did he responsible find that out? for that. I guess he, he was already older. He was maybe seven or eight. Um, but I've certainly... Uh, I don't think that being a developmental psychologist helps at all in terms of raising your kids. If anything, it makes Mm. it harder. And I muddled through, made terrible mistakes, regretted things the way everybody else does. But I do think it makes you a better scientist because uh, seeing the kind of natural, spontaneous things that children uh, did often is a way of getting good hints at what good experiments would be like. Have any grandchildren yet? No, unfortunately. One of the things I... One of the things I talk about in the book is the idea of allo mothers. Uh, Sarah Hurdy at uh, UC Davis has written a whole wonderful book about this, um, about the fact that human babies really seem to be designed to be taken care of by not just mothers, but lots of other people. Allo, A-L-L-O, mother. Allo, mothers. Other mothers. Exactly. Um, And you look at lots of animals, although not, interestingly, the great apes, but including us, uh, and they have lots of people in the community who help take care of babies. And one theory is that our extended lifespan as humans, we live much longer than chimps independently of our medicine and all the rest of it, just kind of naturally. Uh, One theory is that that kind of was an evolutionary double whammy because it gave us this long period of immaturity that we could use for learning. And it gave us grandmothers at the other end who could actually Mm. help take care of the children during that long period of immaturity. So you mean like double benefit. Double benefit, exactly. Talk about evolution. Um, Evolutionary psychology, sort of what used to be called sociobiology. Right. Some people say it's sociobiology by another name. The idea that you can explain human behaviors through evolution. If we do something, it's probably because it was selected by evolution because it was an adaptive advantage that helped us reproduce and propagate our genes. Do you apply that very much? Do you, uh, I mean, does evolution help you figure out some of your explanations or do you just simply want to observe and see what's really out there? Well, evolutionary psychology has become a, it's a bit of a misnomer because Anybody who's a psychologist nowadays or a cognitive scientist uh, looks to evolution as the ultimate explanation for why it is that we the way we are the way we are. That's yeah. just doing a scientific study of, of human beings. Uh, but evolutionary psychology has come to mean something much more specific, which is the view that there are these very, very specific evolved genetic modules, people sometimes call them, very, very specific capacities that are the same now as they were in the Pleistocene. So someone like Steven Pinker, for instance, has this view. And I don't think we have very much evidence for that. Instead, what evolution seems to have done was to give us these capacities to learn and change and adapt to our environment. Um, And that's really our trick. That's our evolutionary trick. So one of the things I say is it's our uh, nature is to nurture. That's what our evolutionary uh, uh, adaptation is. Uh, So I actually think a lot about evolution, but I think evolution tells us, thinking about evolution gives us a different story, a different picture than the picture that evolutionary Mm. psychology, in quotes, Mm. is usually advanced. For example, uh, real evolutionary psychologists, as opposed to just people who make up just those stories, 
uh, like to have evidence from lots of different animals, mm -hmm. not just, well, this would have been good for us humans when we were in the Pleistocene, but let's actually look across lots of species and see which uh, characteristics are associated with which evolutionary niches. And one of the clearest patterns is that a long period of immaturity is connected to a strategy of flexibility and learning in adulthood. So if you compare crows and chickens, for example, um, crows are really, really smart animals. They can actually even do some kinds of tool use. Um, and they're dependent, baby crows are dependent for a year and a half on the adult crows, which is a long time. During which time they're learning, adapting, right, know, gathering exactly. information. And it's the story seems to be that the trade-off is long period of helplessness early on, lots of flexibility and learning later. And you can see how that would mm -hmm, work. You mm -hmm. have this protected period to learn, and then you can take what you've learned and put it to use later on. Um, from that perspective, when you see that we are creatures with the longest immaturity by far of any animal uh, and tremendous flexibility, you tend to think, well, it looks like we're the sort of creature that relies a lot on learning rather than relying on these beautifully adapted, innate, uh, evolved modules or instincts or um, built-in genetic so, uh, devices. So in that view, evolution gives us the tools, but it doesn't tell us what to do with them. Exactly. Uh-huh. Um, Parents these days worry a lot about the impact every little thing might have on the future of the child. You know, if I don't respond correctly to a baby crying, I'm going to ruin this person's life. It's going to be stamped on them forever, you know. Is there a sense of, in, in your work of having, you know, observed kids and how they develop that really parents don't have that big an impact in all those little ways that they might be anxious about? Or, or do we have that ability to steer a kid right or wrong, even through the smallest actions? Well, one of the things that we've discovered is that it's very complicated. Uh, so the relationship between what children's early experiences are like and how they turn out as adults is very complicated and interactive and multifaceted. But I think it's fair to say that although parents clearly have a big influence on their children, it's not at the level of the things that we worry about. So, you know, the difference between uh, having... a uh, enough money to get by and not, that makes a big difference. Uh, uh, the difference in how well-supported you are or isolated or those make a big difference. But the difference in, you know, do you play Mozart to your child or not or do you let him sleep in your bed or not, all the things that unfortunately are the ones that uh, middle-class parents are focusing on, there's not much evidence that any of that actually makes much of a difference in the long run. Okay. Well, Allison, thanks. Okay. Allison Gopnik, professor of psychology at UC Berkeley. Her new book is The Philosophical Baby, What Children's Minds Tell Us About Truth, Love, and the Meaning of Life. Now, as Alison Gopnik said in that interview, the child mind is all about exploring and inquiring and learning as much as possible, as quickly as possible, which um, leads to that question that parents know all too well. It's amazing. This is my daughter the other day. She's like, Papa, why can't we go outside? Well, because it's raining. Why? <laughs> well, water's coming out of the sky. Why? Because it was in a cloud. Why? Well, clouds form when there's vapor. Why? I don't know. I don't know. That's all. I don't know any more things. Those are all the things I know. Why? Because I'm stupid, okay? I'm stupid. Why? 
Well, because I didn't pay attention in school, okay? I went to school, but I didn't listen in class. Why? Because I was high all the time. I smoked too much pot. Why? Because my parents gave me no guidance. They didn't give a shit. Why? Because they f***ed in a car and had me, and they resented me for taking their youth. Why? Because they had bad morals. They just had no compass. Why? Because they had shitty parents. It just keeps going like that. Why? Because f*** it. We're alone in the universe. Nobody gives a shit about us. I'm going to stop here to be polite to you for a second. But this goes on for hours and hours, and it gets so weird and abstract at the end. It's like, why? Well, because some things are and some things are not. Why? Well, because things that are not can't be. Why? Because then nothing wouldn't be. You can't have f***ing nothing isn't. Everything is. I've been waiting for an excuse to air that clip. That was Louis C.K., the one and only. This is the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. I'm Robert Polly. Now, as we heard in that interview with Alison Gopnik, one reason that humans are smarter than, say, the average bear isn't just that we have a bigger brain, but that it takes so long to mature. Humans are the Peter Pans of the animal world with super long childhoods. So to uh, compare us with the baby fish, for instance, they come out of the egg pretty much miniature adults. From the start, they're able to swim and do most everything that the big fish do. And uh, for the most part, they're set in their ways. Never mind all the time they spend in schools. Humans, on the other hand, come out of the oven very undercooked and spend decades getting baked, you know the type, which um, gives our brains lots of time to develop and adapt and fine-tune the old circuitry. And while this may be the extreme case in the animal kingdom, we're not the only species to benefit from this strategy. As Alison Gopnik mentioned, crows have an extended childhood too, or um, chickhood, compared to other birds, and that may be the reason that they're so wicked smart. How smart? Well, it happens I talked to a guy who knows crows and admires their acumen. Josh Klein is an inventor and self-described hacker who's fascinated by crows and dreams up ways to harness their intelligence. The thing with crows started about 10 years ago when a friend of mine and I were at a party, and uh, he looked around at all the crows and said they were really a nuisance, we should get rid of them all. And I said, yeah, that's crazy, you should do something useful with them. And uh, he said, that's impossible. And nothing bothers me more than hearing that something's <laughs> impossible. So for the next 10 years, I, I basically was looking up information about crows. What did you learn? Um, well, the first thing I learned is that they're incredibly populous. And in fact, if it weren't for the West Nile virus, which has really decimated them, we'd be seeing, um, some scientists think, up to exponential growth. And they live a long time, isn't that right? In the absence of the West Nile virus? Yeah, it's hard to tell. Captive crows, I mean documentation has been spotty. So, you know, you could estimate, you know, 15 to 30 years. 15 to 30 years. Do they also mate for life? You know, technically, in terms of ornithological, ornithological terms, yeah, they, they find one partner and they stay with them. But uh, in nature being messy as it is, crows will sometimes cheat on each other, mm -hmm. or if they don't manage to have eggs, then they, things might not work out, uh, you know. So they mate for life in the sense that humans... Exactly. <laughs> well, your friend said um, it's impossible to do anything useful with crows. Mm. That uh, was a challenge that you took up. Mm -hmm. And the result? Well, I sat on it for about 10 years and was reading about articles and whatnot. And eventually I decided, you know, really we could do something useful with them. I mean, these animals are incredibly intelligent. They're really populous. And it turns out they learn from each other. So I made a vending machine that trains them to pick up coins that they find on the street. Describe it. 
So the machine uses four stages uh, of Skinnerian training. It's like shaping or operant conditioning is the technical term. Um, and basically it just gets them familiar with the idea of arriving and uh, dropping something in the slot and then getting a peanut. So this is a box of some kind? Yeah, it's a box. It's about three feet tall. Uh, we're constantly refining the design. Um, but it's got a little feeder slot and then a hole underneath it and a perch in front of it. So the idea is the crow, acting just like a person at a vending machine, puts in a coin, mm-hmm. gets, a, gets a treat. Gets out a peanut. So how's this useful? Well, for one thing, there's $216 million worth of change lost every year in the United States alone. Um, you could actually get crows to collect loose change that they find, mm-hmm. pop it in your vending machines distributed in every corner of the United States, <laughs> and um, you'd come along and collect the, uh, the, the bounty every so, so often? That's one idea. <laughs> I mean, obviously there's a certain appeal to that, um, the idea of crows hopping around and, and picking up changes pretty nice. Really, for me, it's that we prove that we can train them to do things. So, for example, we get them to pick up garbage after an event at a stadium or uh, pull out co- valuable components from discarded electronics or maybe even do search and rescue. Who knows? And no one's really seen how quickly or how flexibly these crows can learn. And you said other possible applications. Mm. Search and rescue? For example, I mean, crows can recognize people at the University of individual Washington. Individual people. Yeah, recognize particular individuals. This is actually a problem at the University of Washington in Seattle. How so? Um, well, some years ago, some graduate students went out and netted themselves some crows on campus, just, you know, just to weigh them, measure them and whatnot. And when they let them go, these crows flew up in the trees and started heckling them, you know, calling at them, flying around, making a nuisance of themselves. And this went on for all the next week and the week after that. And the month after that, and eventually students went home for summer break. And when they came back, those particular students were still getting heckled by crows. Eventually they graduated, and even when they came back after graduating, they were still recognized. That is amazing. It's amazing to me because um, supposedly we humans have a chunk of our visual system devoted to recognizing faces. And other animals don't necessarily have that, especially for human faces. Mm-hmm. So what is it these crows are using as their, as their clue to who these people are? That's one of the big mysteries about crows, is crows have something called a theory of mind. That is, if I put a nut under the rug and I see you see me do it, I mm-hmm. know you know there's a nut under the rug. I can make a model of what you know. Crows have this ability, and for the longest time, psychologists believe that only humanoids, have, or not humanoids, but like, uh, monkeys and, and humans have this ability. Primates, Primates yeah. Um, but it turns out, and they thought that they'd identified the exact place in the frontal lobes where this came from. You could actually reach in with a metal wire and scramble it. But it turns out that crows don't have frontal lobes. We have no idea how their brains work. They've followed entirely different evolutionary paths. Now, now, crows are reputed to be pretty smart in other ways. Yeah, that's true. For example, they have brand loyalty. To old crow uh, bourbon? No, I, I hope not. Although <laughs> the one crow I've been experimenting with apparently has a predilection for whiskey and Coke. Um, no, the, for example, if you take a, a plain brown paper bag and throw it on the, on the ground, and you take a McDonald's bag and you throw it on the ground, crows that have been eating from McDonald's will fly to the McDonald's bag nine times out of ten. They'll recognize the logo. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's one example. Um, other examples of, of crow intellect? Well, they're also really good at tool use. Um, obviously, there are some variations between different species and, and, and lines of crows. New Caledonian crows in particular have got the interest of the scientific field because they'll do things like bend wires to make hooks, unprompted. Bend wires to make hooks. Yeah, there's one, there's one example particularly. You can find this video online where a crow named Betty was released into a, an experimentation room, and the researchers were waiting to see which length of, of sticks she would use to get this piece of meat out of a 
a tube. This is something crows do naturally. They they, they take sticks and get you know grubs and insects out of cracks in wood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So New Caledon crows are actually known for this. Mm-hmm. But uh, in this case, they messed up. A, an earlier bird had pulled out the the tool they had meant for her to use, and so all that was left was a piece of wire. And the crow probes at the tube for a while, which has a little bucket in the bottom with a, a ring that you can pull to pull it out. And then suddenly the crow sticks the wire in the space between the tube and the rock that it's taped to and bends it into a hook and then proceeds to pull out the little tub in the bottom of the wire. Totally unprompted. I don't think I've even heard of apes manipulating tools that way. In a lot of ways, particularly logical and deductive reasoning, crows are, in, are actually smarter than a lot of the great apes. Uh, another example. In Sweden, they have a problem where fishermen will go out to go ice fishing and they'll drop lines down holes in the ice, and crows will come along after them and pull the lines up and eat the bait. I've read that there's there's something that crows have learned to do in, um, is it Tokyo or some other Japanese city? Uh, yes. Involving breaking nuts? Yeah, yeah. It's a place called Sendai City, and it all started about 10 years ago at a driving school there where crows um, started dropping nuts in, in front of cars. And what those crows learned was that the cars would go driving, driving back and forth and break the nuts, but then they had to find a way to get the nuts without getting run over. And those crows learned that when the streetlight went off, turned green so you could walk, they could walk along with the pedestrians and get their nuts. So what's interesting about that isn't that they are fetching nuts after cars crack them or that they're paying attention to traffic signs, although that's quite nice, but rather that now all the crows in a five-kilometer radius are standing around on sidewalks waiting for the light to change. They've watched other crows do it and learned by example. Exactly. And that's part of the evolution that we're seeing with these crows is they're getting cultural evolution. So they're, they're learning to pass on what they learn to their mates, their peers, their enemies in some cases. Is there something that identifiable in the crow brain that accounts for this apparently amazing amount of intelligence? Well, researchers are still trying to figure that out. Obviously, the question's pretty loaded. Like, what is intelligence? You know, it makes it a, a difficult task. Sure. But some of the theories that we've seen, uh, particularly in looking at other species that demonstrate high levels of intelligence, as we think of it, is that social species have a lot of, of requirements on them in terms of remembering who your mate is versus somebody else's mate, you know, who the alpha male or female is, where your rank is in the hierarchy. It turns out that that's a lot of complex thinking that's required in order to maintain a hierarchy. And it seems to be somewhat associated with higher levels of intelligence. Hmm. Now, our relationship to crows, um, based on the fact that we like live in close proximity, a lot of crows, you know, share our habitat. Mm-hmm. I think that's referred to by a fancy word, synanthropy. Synanthropy. Explain it. So synanthropy basically refers to a species that has hyper-evolved to a human ecology. Um, and I think it's particularly fascinating because it happens due to our putting selective pressures on these species. So rats, for example, are incredibly responsive breeders. Cockroaches are increasingly becoming resistant to the poisons that we use on them. And crows are becoming smarter. Hyper-evolved? In that they have evolved in uh, pretty specialized ways. I mean, if you look at how rats live with human beings, mm-hmm. I'm sure rats would do pretty well in the jungle, mm-hmm. but they're doing much better in mm-hmm. cities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess when we look at these synanthropic species, most of them... I guess, uh, really based on our own predilections, are, are thought of as vermin, right? I mean, mm-hmm. raccoons, pigeons, cockroaches, bacteria, germs. Yes, I think it's a Cenotobacter baumani 
is a, a bacteria that they're finding in bleach bottles in hospitals. It's a superbug. Oh, it's basically been absorbing the DNA of a bunch of other relatively antibiotic um, diseases. So, for example, like E. coli or staph and whatnot. It's just taking chunks of DNA that allow it to thrive in an environment that, that is too challenging for other viruses or bacteria to live. As a result, now we see a lot of these, particularly due to the antibacterias that have been overprescribed, we're seeing bugs that are, are emerging as a result of the pressures we put on them. It's one thing to resist an antibiotic, which interferes with metabolism, but doesn't literally destroy the organism. It's another thing to survive bleach, yeah, which is an incredibly powerful corrosive sort of chemical or oxidative chemical. True, true. But if you think about it, I mean, there are bacteria that live on the seafloor next to thermal vents. We know that nature abhors a vacuum. When you provide an environment that you have made incredibly difficult to, to live in to other species, it's actually an opening for any species that can figure out how to live there. Mm. So, for example, um, you can find uh, a field of a mass grave. And when a body decays, it leaves behind some, certain heavy elements that the body itself can't process. Most things that live in dirt can't process this. Sites of mass graves show bacteria that are able to process those because it's, in, it's a great profusion of it there. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, as we talked about a moment ago with regard to the crows, um, you see sort of opportunities in synanthropic relationships between mm. people and animals. I definitely, mean, definitely. Not just that they're pests and we need to control them. Well, yeah, mainly because we can't. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that it's not for lack of trying that, you know, cockroaches are, are now becoming immune to poisons. I mean, if we could, we'd kill off all the rats, we'd kill off all the cockroaches, we'd get rid of the pigeons, you know, they're a nuisance. Mm-hmm. But we've been very, very unable to, to do that. We've been really unsuccessful at it. And in the process, we've been putting selective pressures on these animals to learn to be more parasitic. They're evolving to be more parasitic. So it's just like the bacteria growing in bleach bottles. The harder we try and kill off the rats, the better they get at breeding to come back. So what's your proposal? My proposal is that we find mutually beneficial systems. Now, this is a little tricky depending on the different species, but each species has certain predilections that can be exploited or or used in a way that establishes an equilibrium with their populations and does for us some benefit. So the simple experiment I've done so far is to teach crows to pick up change. There's lots of change lost in the States Mm -hmm. every day. You know, if they pick that up, that's something that I'm not going to do on my way to work, but I don't mind having an extra $1.50 in the backyard when I get home. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that this can serve as a model for ways to interact with other species. Do you have any other ideas, other species? Mm, There's lots of them out there. I mean, rats, for example, are very good at eating um, spoiled materials and leaving behind the plastic ring wrappers, you know. Why don't we have them eat out all the all the regular materials that you know the the biodegradable materials that are there, and then make sure that they, you know, excrete the remains of that someplace that we can use to actually turn it into fertilizer? Because it's actually very expensive to pull all the plastics out of garbage and turn it into fertilizer. So, are you volunteering to say train New York City's rats? Not right at the moment. No, maybe a little later. <laughs> so, what are you going to do next to follow up on the on this 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 interest of yours? Well, next, I'd really like to try and build more of these boxes and test the limits of these crows' ability to learn new tasks and to see how flexible they can be about it. You know, ultimately, it would be awesome if we could put a little screen on the box that showed them an object of what they were supposed to pick up in exchange for a, a peanut. I mean, mm-hmm. it, we don't know how flexible their thinking is or how quickly they can pick this up. We really don't know. All we know now is that we can train crows to pick up change, which is nice, but if we can train them to do anything else... That'd be pretty neat. I'll look forward to hearing about it.
Thanks very much. Josh, thanks. Josh Klein there talking about one of his pet subjects, crows. And it turns out there's more to that story about crows recognizing people uh, in Seattle on the University of Washington campus. The um, setup was actually designed to test their ability to recognize faces. The student volunteers who bagged and tagged and released the crows were outfitted with caveman masks, whereas a control group of uh, students walked around wearing Dick Cheney masks and didn't bother the crows at all. Well, by and by, the crows began heckling and harassing anybody wearing a caveman mask, and they left the Dick Cheney impersonators alone. And this was irrespective of the way people walked, the way they talked, their stature, the clothes they wore. It came down to faces. It does seem as though crows really can identify individual human faces. Now, in the name of fairness and balance, I should mention that there are those scientists who doubt at least some of the abilities attributed to crows, like, for instance, theory of mind that Josh talked about. That is the ability to um, model other minds. And I should say in the name of fairness also that there are those who are still unimpressed by babies' mental prowess, like the comedian David Cross. Here's what he has to say to his friends who brag on their baby's intellects. I really think it's like our obligation as friends to be brutally honest and, and be frank with them and say, look, you know, I'm sorry, but your baby is fucking boring. <laughs> boring. Okay, kid, what do you got for me? Really? That's what you had yesterday and day before that? <laughs> Next. All right. Why don't you come back in four years when you accidentally say something funny, all right? Now look what you've gone and done. David Cross's opinions are his own and not those of this show. We love your babies. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly signing off. Love.